Let's pray. <laughs> Father, thank you. Thank you, God. You are good. You let us gather in this room together with, uh, with others and sing your praises. And we've been called into worship. We've been reminded that <clears throat> our sin problem is something that you sent Jesus to deal with. And Lord, it's in that spirit that we come as learners and disciples. Please teach us in this time that we have together. Um, and may we honor Jesus as we listen, as we hear from you. This we ask in his name. Amen. You know, you can tell a lot about a person from where they get their news. Um, if... Uh, People are on one side of the political spectrum. You know, they get their news from one channel, right? If they're on the other side of the political spectrum, they get their news from another. This summer, Holly and I were in Canada with uh, Holly's parents, and uh, Holly's mom actually gets her news from something called a newspaper. Some of you will have heard of this. Um, it's printed on paper. And uh, what that means is, is, that by the time you get it, the news is anywhere from five to eight hours old. So, you know, you might wonder why you would even bother with something like that. News in itself is an interesting business, and it is certainly that, it's a business. Um, how many of you have heard the saying, if it bleeds, it what? It leads, yeah, if it bleeds, it leads. Point being, if it's bad news, you lead with it, right? You splash it on the front page, uh, you open the evening news with that report because it will sell papers or it will grab viewers. Uh, my wife's favorite source for news is a network news anchor. He's a great looking guy. He's got great hair, just fantastic hair. I'm not jealous. He's, he's got great big white teeth. He's got a very smooth sounding voice. Uh, he dresses like a million dollars. He's my wife's uh, favorite newsman. My favorite newsman uh, is Jesus, just as you would expect. Um, are you aware that Jesus is in the news business? I mean, he really is, no kidding. Uh, just before he preached the Sermon on the Mount, we read these words. This is in Matthew chapter four. It says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching, some versions will say proclaiming, same thing, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And news about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering pain, mm, uh, the demon possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed and he healed them. Uh, now, there's a kind of an important distinction made in that text. Uh, we're told that Jesus, of course, teaches. That was one of the things that Jesus did. He would give instruction about how one might want to live their life. He would give advice about that. But we're also told that he preaches or he proclaims. And we often associate preaching with the idea of telling people what to do. But the word then was not necessarily used that way. Um, it was not even a religious word back then, this idea of proclaiming or preaching. It was actually a news word. That's what the word was all about. Jesus went around proclaiming that something had happened and that was news. 
And it's not just news. It was, of course, good news. The Greek word for that, that concept, that idea of good news or gospel is euangelion. Uh, from the little particle you that means good and angelos, which means message or messenger. We get the word angel from that. They're a messenger. So the word euangelion means good message or good news. And in Bible times, that's what Jesus went around announcing or preaching or proclaiming good news. And the English word for that, as I've already mentioned, it's gospel. And most people, even outside the church, have heard of the word gospel. In fact, it's used, you know, well, that's gospel, you know, when they want to say that's the truth about something. But most people, even church people, do not know what the gospel was that Jesus went around announcing. Uh, They are a little unclear about this. And that's not good. In fact, you could argue that's kind of tragic. If Jesus thought something was the biggest news in history and his own followers aren't crystal clear about what that news is exactly, well, that's not good. And that's why you have picked a great weekend to be here with us because I promise you by the end of this message, you will know, number one, what Jesus' news is and you will know how Jesus' news, how Jesus' gospel can literally change your life. So in the weeks to come, we are going to be studying together the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So you could start reading that if you want to get familiar with it, read it over and over and over. And I want to start our study by looking at some verses that precede the Sermon on the Mount, verses that summarize what Jesus' news was. See if you can pick out the key phrase that Jesus uses to announce his news, as I read some different passages where we're kind of given an insight into what that news was about. This is how Mark describes it. Mark says, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Uh, Once Jesus had chosen his disciples and had actually discipled them some, he had trained them up a little. He went on the road with them proclaiming this message. He said, after this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him. They heard him proclaim this message over and over and over, the good news of the kingdom of God. And then one day too, we read that when Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Uh, After Jesus was crucified and resurrected, after he had come back from the dead, he spent his final days on earth talking about, you know, one piece of news again. Acts tells us that he appeared to them, the disciples, over a period of 40 days, and he spoke about the kingdom of God. And again, at the very end of the book of Acts, when Paul is imprisoned, he's actually under house arrest in the city of Rome. And the last two verses of the last chapter of the book about the early development of the church, the book of Acts, this is what we read. It says, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. And boldly, without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. So altogether, if you've been listening, if you were going to pick one phrase, right, to describe what Jesus' good news is all about, what would that phrase be? 
the kingdom of God, duh. That's what it's about. The gospel of Jesus is about the kingdom of God. Jesus, from the very beginning of his ministry, right to the very end here on earth, went around saying over and over and over again that now through him, through his body, through his teaching, through his death, through his life, through his resurrection, living life in the kingdom of God with God's presence, with God's power is available now to everybody, everybody. And anybody who wants it can have it through Jesus. Uh, and here is something I believe is really, it's tragic. Um, perhaps thousands of churches, uh, maybe even millions of Christians have, have actually taken the gospel of Jesus about the kingdom and substituted another gospel for Jesus' gospel. It's what we might call the get to heaven gospel with a subtitle, something like this, the minimum entrance requirements for getting into heaven when you die gospel, just that that's way too long. What this is, is the, the idea of the bare minimum that you need to have, that you need to believe, that you need to pray, that you need to do in order to get into heaven when you die. But here's the problem with that kind of thinking. Where in the gospels anywhere does Jesus ever say, hey, here are the minimum entrance requirements to get into heaven. He never, ever says anything like that. What he says is the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. It's now available. So think, he says, revise your strategy, follow me and be my disciple. That's what Jesus says. You see, Jesus' gospel leads naturally to the formation of Jesus' disciples. When churches get the gospel wrong, we don't intentionally do this, but what we end up doing is we, uh, we produce consumers of Jesus' merit, right? I'm here to consume and I need some of Jesus' merit so that I can get into heaven. We produce consumers of Jesus' merit rather than disciples of Jesus' life. That's a big problem. Now, of course, the gospel of Jesus does include the message about the forgiveness of sins. That's why Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sin. We know this so that we could be forgiven. And when we believe in Jesus, his forgiveness is of course, a free gift of unmerited grace. That's, that's what it is. And the gospel of Jesus promises that death will not have the last word in our lives, that his resurrection means our life with God will never cease, never, never. But his gospel includes more than that, much more. You see, Jesus came as the bringer of the kingdom. That's who Jesus was. His one message was the availability of the kingdom of God. His whole life was about modeling the kingdom. His whole ministry was to manifest the kingdom, show us what it looked like. His whole mission was to extend the kingdom into the lives of more and more and more people. And his great injunction was to pursue the kingdom literally above everything else. You remember his words, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, the things you need, food, clothing, shelter, all these things will be given to you, added to you. And yet today, I think it's fair to say that many, many Christians, many, many churches cannot even tell you what the kingdom is. They're just fuzzy. They're unclear about it. And this is why we are going to study the Sermon on the Mount together because it tells us all about the kingdom of God over and over and over, different aspects, different angles, different views of the kingdom of God. 
The idea of the kingdom can be hard for us sometimes to understand because we don't live very much in a, uh, in a kingdom world where that kind of language is used. But understand, everybody has a kingdom in the biblical sense of that word. Your kingdom is the little sphere in which what you say and what you want goes. That's your kingdom. And uh, we actually see that human beings have always had their own little kingdoms. Go way back to the book of Genesis. We're told there that then God said, let us make man and woman, of course, in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule or let them have dominion. Let them have influence. Um, that, of course, is kingdom language through and through. And this is also part, I think, of being made in the very image of God. There's something about us that's similar to God. We, we construct, we build, we put together little kingdoms, places where we have influence. Uh, your kingdom is the range of your effective will, where your will will be done. Uh, that starts, of course, with our bodies. Um, it's what we see happen in the life of a little child. A little child, as soon as they begin to crawl and stand. And so if you've got a set of stairs, I don't know, there's some kind of a magnetism that they are drawn to the set of stairs and they're gonna climb up the stairs. And when you see that at first, you say, don't climb up the stairs. And what do they do? They climb up the stairs, of course. That's what they're, they're learning. Oh, they have a body and they can control it to some degree and you can't. <laughs> and so they climb right up the stairs. They are learning. They have a kingdom. Uh, and then there's, of course, the space around your body. We try to control that space too, do we not? Some of you have seats on both sides of you. You don't want anybody sitting next to you. You send out a hormone that people uh, you know, pick up and, oh, this is, a, this is an unfriendly person. I don't want to be near them, you know, and this is their space. I don't want to occupy that space. And this too is why if, if you're ever talking to somebody, you know, particularly this happens in, in other cultures, North America, we kind of have a pretty clearly defined space uh, agreement, which says, you know, you don't get in my space, I don't get in yours. But what do you do when you meet that awkward person? I don't mean anybody here, of course, but you know, and they, they come in, they want to talk to you right here. Isn't that unnerving? Isn't that unsettling? Why? Because they are invading your kingdom. And then there's other things that we include in our kingdom. There's our home, there's our car, there's our money. Uh, let me ask you, how do you feel when someone walks their dog in front of your little kingdom home and they let their dog make a little deposit there in your kingdom and they just leave it, they just go off? Don't you want to kill those people? <laughs> Doesn't that violate your sense of kingdom? We just naturally want to guard. In fact, we naturally want to expand our kingdoms. So, you know, don't violate my time. Don't violate my family. Don't violate my money. Don't violate my stuff. Don't violate my kingdom or I will be upset. It's how we are. When Jesus came to earth, he announced the news that we could actually change kingdoms. That was news. Nobody had talked like that before. He said that God's kingdom had come to earth and we could enter into it. It's a spiritual kingdom, but it's just as real, friends, just as real as any physical kingdom. And Jesus says, you can live in the kingdom of God. And you have to understand that is without a doubt, the greatest opportunity ever 
offered to a human being. It really is. That is the greatest news in all of human history, that there is a God, God's got a kingdom, and you can live in it for crying out loud. What could be better than that? This is the news that Jesus came to announce. He didn't just teach. He came to announce, to proclaim, to preach good news. But understand, this is, this is an important caveat here. If you decide to live in God's kingdom, there can be no doubt that your kingdom must become subservient in subjection to God's kingdom. That's how this works. There's no plan B for that. You see, you can live in the kingdom of God for reals. And in the kingdom of God, understand, nobody can threaten your ultimate well-being. Nobody. Living or dead, spiritual, physical, material, nobody can threaten your well-being. In the kingdom of God, you have the abundance of heaven to support you. In the kingdom of God, a wealth of truth and divine generosity are constantly available to you. You are never really ever at risk ultimately in the kingdom of God. Not ever. The apostle Paul knew this. Now remember, what are some things that happened to the apostle Paul? Name them. What are some things we know happened to him? Shipwrecked. What else? That's right. That's exactly right. All that stuff happened to Paul. And, and yet he writes these words. He writes this. He says, I am convinced that neither death nor life. Woo, that's pretty broad. Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Boom. Wow. Really? Paul, you can say that in the, even though people pursue you to kill you, people have tried to stone you. You've been shipwrecked. You've been imprisoned, timeless, uh, 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 just many, many, many different times. Wow, that, that last little phrase that Paul uses there, in Christ Jesus our Lord, that's actually Paul's language for the kingdom of God. Same thing, equivalence. What Jesus describes as living in the kingdom, Paul describes as living in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul uses that phrase 164 times. Do you think it matters to him? This idea that we live in Christ Jesus our Lord? You bet it does. This idea of being in Christ, that for Paul is the exact same thing as living in Jesus' kingdom. Being in Christ is to be in Jesus' presence. It's to live in Jesus' power. It's to have the favor of Jesus on your life as you negotiate life. And this is the news that makes all the, the Sermon on the Mount so true and so good. You know, the reason that you can turn the other cheek, because that doesn't make any sense, right? But the reason you can turn the other cheek is you live in a kingdom where justice is ultimately assured and will win because of God. The reason that you don't have to worry about tomorrow, what you will eat, what you will drink, is your tomorrow is in the hands of an almighty, all-powerful king. 
The reason that you can store up treasure in heaven by living generously is your king will take care of you. He promises to. He will give you this day your daily bread. And he has all the abundance of heaven to remain faithful to that promise. You get the idea? You see how this works? Jesus isn't just some religious guru who walked around making up pretty sounding sayings from out of nowhere. Jesus is absolutely brilliant. Jesus is a king unlike any other king, a philosopher unlike any other philosopher, a creative genius unlike any other creative genius. And the brilliance of Jesus' teaching rests on the truth of his news. It all rests on the truth of his news, that the kingdom of God is near. So repent and believe the good news, he says. So question, what kingdom are you gonna live in? We all make decisions every day about what kingdom we're gonna live in. You can live in a worry kingdom. Oh man, I gotta cover this. I gotta take care of this. I gotta do this. This is all up to me. Oh, my life is over. There's nothing good going to happen. You can live in that, those kingdoms if you want, worry kingdoms, what have you. What kingdom are you going to live in? You see, we all have kingdoms too. And um, here, our little kingdoms of self get badly, badly, badly affected by our sin. Here on earth, all of our little kingdoms, your kingdom, my kingdom, they all merge, they all intersect, they form larger kingdoms, you know, uh, neighborhoods and corporations and nations and economies and political systems and culture. And uh, kingdoms are actually just systems of personal power. That's what kingdoms are. And we might call that whole conglomeration of our merged kingdoms together the kingdom of this world. That's the language the Bible uses, the kingdom of this world. Let's just for a second, for the fun of it, um, let's do a little uh, contrast between Jesus' kingdom and the kingdom of this world. Jesus says that God's kingdom exists right now. It's here right now. Uh, it is the sphere where things happen just the way God wants them to happen. That's God's kingdom. Paul writes this in Romans. He says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. In other words, it's not a matter of legalistic rules. The kingdom of God is not, hey, here's a, here's a bunch of rules you gotta follow. That's, that's not what the kingdom of God is. He says, it is uh, he says, but of righteousness, rightness, goodness, good things happen in the kingdom of God where the will of God is done. Peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what characterizes the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of God. Uh, so wherever you happen to see God's kingdom showing itself, people are helping people. And people are forgiving people. And people are loving people the way they want them to turn around and love them back. And people are gentle and people are kind. And people are merciful. And people have servant hearts. That's the kingdom of God. That's Jesus' kingdom. Well, then there's the kingdom of the world. How's it doing? How are things going in the kingdom of the world? I, I would say, you know, my observation is not so great. Not so great. I mean, just check out the news, right? Doesn't matter what, where your source is. Just, just check out the news. Let's see, we got nuclear weapons in Korea, but you know, the government there is pretty stable. We've got devastating storms uh, happening in uh, various parts of the world, horrendous loss. 
Racism, you would think we would have that figured out by now. Turns out we don't. Terrorism, wow, still happening. International conflicts galore. I mean, Syria, Russia, Turkey, you name it, Iran. Political polarization. I think it might be fair to say hatred, political hatred, right here in our own Christian country. (laughs) And we're not even sure if we can trust the news to tell us the news or if we're getting fake news, right? But Jesus has a plan. Jesus is bringing his kingdom here to earth. Up there is coming down here. Most of you will know that the most famous prayer in history is called the Lord's Prayer. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. We'll get to that. We will get to study that in uh, weeks uh, ahead. And uh, most people think they, they know the Lord's Prayer, but in a survey that was done recently, many people were asked, you know, do you know the Lord's Prayer? And many said, yes, they do. And then when they were asked to recite it, it started oftentimes like, now I lay me down to sleep. <laughs> I'm not making that up. Yeah, now I lay me down to sleep. There you go. <laughs> many people actually don't know the Lord's Prayer. Uh, it begins this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God, you see, is the range of God's effective will. That's what the kingdom is. is. It's where God's will will be done. And many people in the church think that the gospel prayer, the main prayer, the most important prayer that a person can pray is, God, help me get out of here when I die so that I can go up there when I die. But Jesus never said to pray that prayer, never once. What he said to pray was, Father in heaven, make up there. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. Come down here, you see. That's, that's the Lord's prayer. Now, not just that, Jesus said it's already begun. This is already happening all over the place. He says that Jesus said the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, it's right here. So repent and believe the good news, Jesus says. Now, uh, Jesus said the good news is breaking news. It's present news. It's news that's happening now. The time has come. How did this time come? Where did this time come? What happened? How is the world different today than it was yesterday? And of course, the answer is we're in church on a Sunday morning. So what's the answer? It's Jesus. Jesus. The kingdom came when Jesus came. Jesus is here. That's why the time is now. That's why the time has come. You see, this is an audacious claim. If you're you're just a thinking person and you're putting pieces together, you're going, wow, okay. This is a big claim that the kingdom of God has come, is here now and is unfolding. Jesus claims to be the kingdom bringer. Tell me a more audacious claim than that. When Jesus shows up, the kingdom shows up. Understand, in Jesus' life, in Jesus' words, in Jesus' healing ministry, in Jesus' death, in Jesus' resurrection, in all of these things, the shalom of God is present. The peace of the kingdom of God shows up. Up there comes down here. And I think this might actually be the most audacious claim in all of human history. I really do. I don't think I have to qualify that at all. Uh, The king is here. Wow, the king is here. 
And we probably need to know he's here without an ego. He is here in humility. Uh, He's here as a carpenter. He's here as as a servant. Behold the Lamb of God. He comes as a sacrifice. This king isn't so much sitting on a throne when he came as much as hanging on a cross. Who saw that coming? Nobody. And we're gonna learn all about this king as we begin to study the Sermon on the Mount together. As we study the Sermon on the Mount, we wanna understand Jesus and his kingdom. We wanna understand what it means to live in his kingdom. What does that mean for me today and tomorrow? You know, according to Gallup, more than half of Christians do not know who taught the Sermon on the Mount. True. No kidding, one poll, in one poll, 12% of the people polled thought it was called the Sermon on the Mount because it was given while sitting on horseback. Seriously, (laughs) seriously. So just for clarity's sake, who taught the Sermon on the Mount? Yeah. What kind of horse was he riding? (laughs) We'll get to that later. How important do you think the Sermon on the Mount is? Here's a Harvard professor, Harvey Cox. He's an interesting guy. Don't really recommend much of his writings, but anyhow, he's a, he's a bright guy. He says this about the Sermon on the Mount. He says, it is the most luminous, most quoted, most analyzed, most contested, most influential moral and religious discourse in all of human history. Wow. Why do you think that is? You think one day Jesus just got lucky as a communicator? You think Jesus is just a highly inspirational, you know, motivational kind of speaker? <laughs> you think Jesus was just happened to be in a zone one day and it just all came out, you know, like this sermon is happening right now? <laughs> no, 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 no. You see, the Sermon on the Mount is not general moral advice on how to be nice to each other. A lot of people think that's what it is. They couldn't be more more wrong. It's not a series of random, lovely religious sayings, nor is it a list of religious rules, which a lot of people think that's what the Sermon on the Mount is. I'll tell you what it is, I think. It is a bold, brilliant, fearless, life-transforming trumpet blast to come join King Jesus in his divine conspiracy to bring heaven to earth and to redeem the world. And I mostly stole that from Dallas Willard. It's just one of the best descriptions of the kingdom I've ever heard. A bold, brilliant, fearless, life-transforming trumpet blast to come join King Jesus in his divine conspiracy to bring heaven to earth and redeem the world to make the world what it's supposed to be, to function the way it's supposed to function. Now, the question is, will the gospel of Jesus become your gospel? The question is, what kingdom will you live in? It's a matter of choice. You know, everybody, uh, everybody has a gospel. 
A gospel is what you ultimately put your hope in. Many of you, it's your investment package, your portfolio. Everybody has a gospel. Everybody has a kingdom. Everybody is waiting for some good news. This word gospel was and is a loaded, loaded word. When Jesus was born, understand uh, Rome itself, the empire of Rome had a gospel. We've actually looked at this before. Uh, this is from a Roman inscription that uh, is found, was found, and it, it's dated to the very time of Jesus. This is what the Roman inscription says. It says the birthday of the God Augustus, you know, Roman emperors were considered to be divine has been for the whole world, the beginning of good news concerning him. Good news, same word, euangelion, gospel. Caesar had a gospel too, you see. And that the gospel of Rome was that now Caesar has come. Now the, uh, you know, the Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome can now exist for everybody. It's such good news that Caesar has been born. The gospel of Jesus is the claim that Rome's good news is fake news. Do you get that? Any good news of any nation of any time, uh, that, that good news only goes about that far. And it's fake news because the ultimate good news is the good news of the kingdom of God coming. Jesus claims that not Caesar, not any human kingdom can redeem, transform, and save the earth or the human race. Only King Jesus can do that. Only the kingdom of God can do that. So again, you know, what, what gospel will you believe in? What kingdom will you live in? You know, here's the thing. If you want to respond to Jesus' gospel, you do so by making him your king, by taking your little kingdom and making it subservient to his. You, you do that by making Jesus the Lord of your life, the friend in your life that's better than any other friend, the forgiver in your life. You do not respond to Jesus by saying, hey, you know, Jesus, I'd like to use your death as my ticket to get into heaven, but I think I'll stay in charge of my own life. Thank you very much. No, no. No, Jesus says you repent. And repent does not mean feel badly. That's not what repent means at all. It primarily is a thinking word. Um, it, it, it primarily is a matter of changing your thinking, revising your strategy, if you will, for living in light of this most remarkable opportunity, the opportunity to have your kingdom subservient to Jesus' kingdom and live in the kingdom of God. That's what repentance is. It's a revised strategy. Now, again, what kingdom are you going to live in? I mean, here's the deal. You can be a disciple of the most brilliant teacher, preacher that ever lived. You can be a disciple of Jesus. You can become his apprentice. You can become his follower. I love how Dallas Willard puts this too. He says, and I quote, a disciple of Jesus is one who practices, that is an important word. A disciple of Jesus is one who practices his Jesus presence and arranges his or her life in such a way as to live as Christ would live if he were them. Being a disciple of Jesus is a lot about imitating Jesus. If you think you're gonna be a disciple of Jesus and not imitate him, good luck to you. I promise you that won't work. If you think you can have your own set of priorities, even though Jesus' priorities are a different set, that's good, good luck. It's not gonna work. It'll save you a lot of time there. I'll tell you what, gang, as a church, we exist for one reason without apology, and that reason is discipleship. 
We exist to be disciples and we exist to make disciples. We want to lead people into a transforming relationship with Jesus. We wanna be transformed because of our relationship with Jesus. You see, the big idea behind the Sermon on the Mount is that we can actually do the stuff that Jesus tells us to do. We can do the stuff that Jesus did with his constant presence and his gracious help. We can with his spirit. Uh, When we do that, heaven comes to earth. Up there comes down here. Let me explain. Every time you are angry and tempted to seek revenge, but instead you turn the other cheek, Ian, I forgive you. (laughs) Up there comes down here. That's why Jesus said to do that. Every time you're tempted to enrich your little kingdom and pile up more stuff for your kingdom, but instead through generosity, you store up treasure in heaven, you serve, you give, you sacrifice, up there comes down here. Every time you're tempted to judge, but you judge not, up there comes down here. Every time you break through the the problem of selfishness that we all have and you let your light shine in such a way that people see your good deeds, up there comes down here. Every time you are tempted to make your life just about a, a better, bigger more comfortable lifestyle, but instead you consider the lilies of the field and, and who live there in the kingdom of God and you decide, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna trust God in this. Up there comes down here. Every time you do unto others what you would have others do unto you, every time you let your yes be yes and your no be no, every time you give in secret, serve in secret, love in secret, every time you pray for daily bread for you and for others, every time you ask, every time you seek, every time you knock, up there comes down here. And it's happening just as Jesus said it would, just as he said it would. The kingdom is coming everywhere someone deliberately follows Jesus. There's the kingdom. You see, we are not consumers of Christianity, waiting to leave here and go up there. Quite the opposite. We are followers of Jesus helping up there come down here. And just a note, the good news means something else. It means that whatever is going on in your little kingdom these days, whatever it is, however hard, However disappointing, however sad, however heartbreaking, you have something to look forward to. That's always the news for someone living in the kingdom. Remember, Paul said, I'm convinced neither life nor death, there's nothing, nothing on earth can separate us from the king. Nothing, nothing ever will. Jesus says up there is coming down here. It's already begun. It's never going to stop. One glorious day, the whole earth and anybody who wants to, you and me, will be perfectly aligned with his will. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And Jesus is doing this. This is what Jesus is up to right now, today, in this moment. And if you ever feel uh, inadequate or if you ever feel guilty or you ever feel discouraged or beaten down or hopeless, well then in the kingdom, just, just go to the cross. Consider Jesus shed blood for you. You see, it's in the cross that we, we uh, supremely see the mystery, and it is a mystery, 
the mystery of Jesus' kingdom at work, most visible at the cross. Because it's at the cross where we see the way of humility and the way of servanthood and the way of death to self and the way of sacrificial love. All this stuff that quite frankly looks so weak and pathetic and just, you know, likely to fail. I mean, let's be honest. The cross looked like Jesus' greatest moment of failure. That's what everybody thought it was. That's what the evil one thought it was. Yahoo! I got him. That's what the devil thought. He is dead. This crap is over. That's what the devil thought. <laughs> it wasn't over. It was just getting started. The cross looked like Jesus' greatest failure, but who knew? <laughs> it was his greatest triumph. And it was for you. And it was for me. I mean, so the cross has against, all, uh, has against all odds become the focal point of the message of good news. How stupid is that? That something so awful becomes the essence of the good news. But of course it would. Because if it bleeds, it leads, right? Of course. What else would be? So it is in Jesus' kingdom. And week after week after week in this series where we study the, the Sermon on the Mount together, I will be inviting you to join me to be a learner, to be a disciple of Jesus, to really arrange our priorities the way Jesus arranged his and to be his followers so that our light shines, so that our good works are evident, so that the kingdom of God is actually seen in us. Can you imagine I invite you to join us for our study of the greatest sermon ever preached. Let's become imitators of Jesus. Let's become a conduit for the kingdom. Amen. Let's pray. Father, um, be our teacher. As we study this sermon together in the weeks to come, uh, would you open our eyes? Would you change our hearts? Would you transform us? Would you convince skeptics um, of your love for them? Convince us again over and over and over of the power of the cross and teach us how to live in your kingdom, Jesus. Teach us how to be a light set upon a hill. Help us to be disciples. Help us to make disciples. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.